You are now listening to the people of digital marketing with your host, me, Kenny Soto. This podcast is your source for marketing strategies, tactics, and most importantly, career advice from the best digital marketers in the world. From B2B to B2C, startups to Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between, I interview experts in marketing so that we can grow to become better marketers together. If you're a marketer who wants a leg up in this space, well, guess what? You're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Marketing is here. Marketing's mission is not to share revenue with sales, revenue credit with sales. Marketing's mission is to help sales sell more product to more customers faster and more profitably than sales could do by itself, period. That's it. They are business people first who happen to specialize in enterprise IT or HR or marketing, right? So their whole perspective is a business first perspective, not a function first perspective. And that is really, really key. I I just can't even tell you how important that is. If you have any aspirations to move beyond a specialist role in a marketing team and and move up, right, and have a, a more horizontal view across marketing and then ultimately across the business, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to master that. And so I'll give you just a couple of examples, right? If you haven't ever carried a bag, if you don't really know what it's like to sell. My personal view is that you will not uh, be a candidate for CMO within the next five years. You just heard a clip from our newest guest on episode 93 of the People of Digital Marketing. His name is Mark Stoos. Mark is the CEO of Proof Analytics, a marketing analytics platform that helps CMOs and CFOs bridge the ROI gap by providing cause and effect analytics that shows marketing and sales true business impact and financial worth. The company's proof business GPS guides through the whole marketing life cycle and provides a complete picture of a company's marketing efforts. Their solution enables planning, budgeting, and optimization of marketing in all channels. And I mean all of them. An award-winning B2B CMO and CCO, Mark is one of the first leaders to connect all types of marketing investments to revenue, margin, and cash flow impact in complex, long-cycle companies. The reason why I wanted to interview Mark and had a great pleasure interviewing him for more than an hour was because he has the unique perspective of being a former CMO and a current CEO. So he's able to share what it means to really be successful as a marketer at the highest levels. I'm not going to prolong this intro by giving you a breakdown of all the things we talk about because that's in the show notes. And it's uh, really doing a disservice to try and encapsulate everything that he shared in this episode. This is a longer episode, by the way, if you haven't noticed, most of our episodes are 35 to 40 minutes long. This one is an hour long, but there is a reason for that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I know I did. I've listened to this episode at least six times just because 
I try and take the notes from this particular episode and bring it with me into where I currently work. Not only does it make me sound smarter, but I feel smarter after listening and editing this episode. So without further ado, let's listen to Mark share his insights on what it means to be a recession-proof marketer and what you should know if you are a new CMO this year. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well today. And I can say this because you're on the podcast and you have a impressive background. You were previous CMO for Honeywell Aerospace. You are now the CEO of a B2B SaaS company called Proof Analytics. And among other things, I definitely consider you a marketing expert. But I want the audience to get a better understanding about your career, not just from my mouth, but from your from your perspective. So let's start off with who are you? How did you get into digital marketing? And what are you doing today? Well, uh, let me say this. To the extent that I'm an expert in anything, it's just that I have discovered all the stuff that I don't know yet. <laughs> so I I started out actually as a, a you know in a complete seemingly a completely different world. Uh, I started out in political journalism, uh, and then I worked in politics in Washington D.C. This is quite some time ago. I was a speechwriter for uh, President Bush the first of uh, so forty one. Um, and, and, uh, and so I, you know, I went into P- big PR agencies after that. Um, and I still have a pretty strong, um, bias uh, for, you know, really great communications, really, really great, what we call earned media. But I started to really see that the, that that profession, that there were limits to that profession. And, and I'm, I'm the kind of person that, doesn't really like a lot of limits uh, in in anything that I do. So I had the opportunity to go on the marketing side and start, you know, I kind of had a, in some ways, a a classic career track in the sense that coming out of comms, I went into Marcom, went into, you know, all the, what later became corporate marketing and then product marketing and solutions marketing and, you know, did all that kind of stuff in tech. And ultimately ascended into what I would call the, the, the CMO role in what I would call technology-infused industries. So aerospace would be a really great example uh, of that. And then about 15 years ago, maybe a little more than that, uh, I, I really made a, probably one of the most important decisions in my career in terms of the way things later turned out. Uh, I, be, I I committed to being analytics led, and this is a guy. You know, today, you know, anyone who's known me for a long time thinks it's kind of hilarious that I turned out to be an analytics software CEO, right? Because let's just say that in high school, math wasn't my favorite class. So probably, like a lot of people who go into marketing and go into communications, right? That had something to do with it. It, it. it wasn't by any means the whole thing, but I did kind of want a career that maybe didn't involve advanced math, which, you know, that's it's sort of hilarious that, that, you know, now I've become really known for that. So I, I just, uh, you know, that's I was I was probably one of the very first CMOs in B2B, really huge 
heavyweight enterprise B2B companies to connect uh, what we were doing to revenue margin and cash flow impact, as well as other things like recruiting and retention. And we, we did it using classic regression analytics, so linear and nonlinear math, and then basically came to the, to the inescapable conclusion that the issue was never the math. You know, the math has been around for a long time, and even the data has been around for quite a while. The issue is operationalizing analytics so that normal people, business people, marketers, communicators, whatever, can make a better decision as a result of being exposed to the analytics than they could otherwise make. And that means automation. That means a much better non-technical UX, for example, that they can understand that they don't have to sit there and go, I don't know what the hell that means, right? So that's what we built with Proof, and that, that kind of brings us up to the present day. There are many places I want to go in this interview, but I want to start off with your experience at Honeywell. From my understanding, you took a very different approach to what a lot of marketing leaders might be doing today, which is not focusing so much on top of funnel activities and initiatives. From another interview I heard, you made a mention of focusing more so on the middle and the bottom of the funnel, correct. focusing more so on average deal velocity rather than just growing the top portion of the pipeline. So can you talk more about why you took that approach and if that approach can work today as well? So the short answer is yes, it, abs- it, you know, it, it absolutely can. The, the bigger answer is that everything you do as a marketer has to be seen in the context of the business and the industry that you're in. In the case of Honeywell Aerospace, like, like most aerospace companies, everybody was already doing business with everybody else, right? There, the, the whole idea of a net new logo or you know, kind of classic lead gen at the top of the funnel wasn't it just wasn't relevant you weren't going to get anything in that sense now demand creating demand was really important but i see that as a full funnel exercise in any in almost any case i can right now i'm sure that there is somewhere but i can't think of a situation where creating demand is not a full funnel exercise so if we think about what honeywell as a technology manufacturer. So Honeywell Aerospace makes everything that goes onto airplanes except the airframe itself. So engines, radios, navs, wheels, brakes, electrical, you name it, everything that goes inside uh, and fits out an airplane of any size, all the way from your Cessna 172, all the way up to huge um, airline planes and then certainly defense and stuff like that. So can I, can I quickly jump in and ask a question here Um, for more context for the audience, how much was like an average deal size and also the average sales cycle? Okay. So this is where it was also really relevant, right? Yeah. So it's a highly regulated industry. These are really big deals. 
you not only have to win the deal, but before you even have a chance to win the deal, you have to win a place on a platform. So the big platform that everybody was focused on 10 years ago um, was uh, the Boeing 787. Um, and so we, you know, at Honeywell, we wanted a lot of our products to be approved for that platform because there's usually only like, you know, I'm just going to pick one category, right? Radios. There's usually only about three approved vendors. So, and you're, if you're not approved for the platform, you have no chance for about the next 15 or 20 years to make any money off that platform. So that was job one. And then once you were approved for the platform, you had to, you know, let's say it's the 787, you know, you had to go to the airlines and convince them that when they bought the 787 from Boeing, that they wanted to specify your radio, Honeywell's radios, as opposed to somebody else's radios, right? So we're talking about a very long cycle situation, years in some cases. We're also talking about very regulated, very risk averse. I mean, let's be honest, we want them to be risk averse, okay? So very careful. And average deal size is in the many, many, many millions uh, of, of dollars. You know, we're talking about more accurately hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, over a period of years, particularly if you're talking about the defense sector. So the two big uh, metrics that the company cared about the most was op income, so that's profits, right, and deal velocity. And nobody really thought, because it was so regulated and all this kind of stuff, that you could really do too much about average deal velocity, that it was just kind of, it was what it was and all that kind of stuff. But op income, you know, was, was really significant. So we, we went out and we, we started packaging, instead of going to market in separate product lines, we started packaging solutions that were targeting different major airline or, or defense industry problems and selling them as a, as a solution and when you do that, whether it's in aerospace or whether it's in SaaS or you know whatever it is, you typically have an, uh, an opportunity to make a lot more money, a lot more profit on the deal than you otherwise would. But we also really attacked the issue of velocity. And it was sort of a speculative move uh, in the early days uh, of all this. Um, as I said, not a lot of people thought it would work. But one of the things that we really saw was that there were very, 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 that's three varies, okay, strong relationships, correlations between levels of customer confidence and, and customer trust and velocity of decisions. And so we really put a lot into building up confidence and trust in Honeywell in this space. And we ultimately, over a two-year period, we increased average deal velocity by about 4%, a little more than 4%. So our revenue at that time was running around 12 or 13 billion a year. So you get that kind of revenue moving, let's call it round numbers, 5% faster through the system, right? You're gonna make a whole lot of people very, very happy 
not the least of which was the CFO of Honeywell Aerospace, who is a member of the proof board today because of that experience. So there's, there, you know, and we actually got called out in two different uh, meeting aerospace marketing, got called out twice uh, by the then CEO, Dave Cody, in, in uh, earnings calls for our, our contribution because we could prove it. So we were running large scale analytics the old fashioned way. We had we hired a bunch of analysts uh, to get the throughput. Right. So that's how it worked. And and uh, do I think that marketers have really over rotated on the top of the funnel? Absolutely. Right. One hundred percent. Totally over rotated. And in doing so, have also opened themselves up for critique. Right. And, and whether it's reasonable or unreasonable is not the point. Right. For sales to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, you got me that lead. But that was like nine or 10 months ago. And I haven't seen you in the in the in the sales motion and the decision journey uh, since that time. Uh, you sure as hell weren't there at the very end when we ate the deal. So this is not mark. Mar- how does marketing get any credit for this? Right. We have to come back and say marketing is here. Marketing's mission is not to share revenue with sales, revenue credit with sales. Marketing's mission is to help sales sell more product to more customers faster and more profitably than sales could do by itself. Period. That's it. Why did this overcorrection occur? So this is my this is my view. I think it's a reasonably educated view, but I, I don't pretend that it's the only one or the complete one, right? I think that what happened was is that for ages and ages marketers were primarily brand oriented and brand is a very long cycle heavily time lagged investment and th- and they had no way to to prove that these brand investments were making a difference and so all these CEOs and CFOs were like this is just a waste of money and then about 10 years ago maybe a little more than that you started getting marketing automation Right. And all of a sudden they saw marketers saw an opportunity using data and and the scale of marketing automation to say, see, we have we have primed the pump. Right. We have gotten all these new leads that you guys would have never had without us and all that kind of stuff. Right. And and, you know, they're well executed these campaigns uh, certainly have worked, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with them uh, as long as they're well done and, and they, they have the right messaging and all that kind of stuff. But they were still too distanced from the end goal. And marketers have, for some reason that I don't understand, I, and, and I'm not trying to be pejorative here at all, but it's not about how many opportunities you tee up. It's about what influence you had at the end on cash generation, right? And did your investments, short, medium, and long cycle, positively drive revenue growth? And, and then, of course, the increase in 
profitability and the improvement in cash flow from revenue. I mean, and that last piece is really important because that is the that's the blood, that's the oxygen of the business right there. My next question comes in two parts. You have the unique perspective of being both a marketer turned CMO as well as CMO to CEO. Yeah. Let's start off with your perspective as a CEO. If you're actively building out a team, which you are, what are you thinking about when it comes to building out your organization and picking the right partner to help in your marketing efforts? Uh, I mean, let me tell you, okay. So this is, this is why the answer to this question is why it is so hard to um, succeed with a, with a startup uh, and why so many of them fail, right? So most customers want to, you know, they, you know, having confidence and trust in their vendor is really important. Most startups haven't been alive long enough to build up that reservoir of confidence and trust. What it takes to build up that reservoir of confidence and trust is very time lagged, meaning it takes time. You can't just start your you know, new company and, and a year later be in a great place in that respect, right? I mean, that's just not typically the way it happens. So as a CEO of a startup, you know, I have evolved from the standpoint that in the early days, so this is just this is exactly like managing a financial investment portfolio, right? You have to have some investments that are long cycle, so-called blue chip, right? You got to have some that are more short cycle and, and involve more risk. And you got to have some in the middle. And where you are in turn in your life has an impact on how you tell your, you know, how you want your, your investment portfolio to look, right? So when I when we started Proof, I knew as a CMO and, and as an analytics-led CMO that I had to start making investments in brand right now, even though it wasn't they were not going to show up as highly relevant uh, to our business success for some time to come. But you got to start somewhere. You got to start sometime, right? So we started right away. Now, the amount of money as a, as a percentage of our total go-to-market spend that we spent on brand in the early days could not be a lot because we needed to make our most of our investments things that could flip into revenue pretty fast. So then as we started kind of moving forward and our brand started gaining strength, and the whole needs of the business started to shift. The reality of the marketplace started to shift. We started to spend more money and more time on the brand. And we brought it into more like a balance between brand and demand. I did a present right about the same time. So this is like right before, you know, this is March 2019. So, you know, less than a year before COVID, I keynoted at South by Southwest on this very issue. Right. And uh, it was it was called Gears and Grease. Gears, in this case, is is demand and Grease is brand. And 
you got to have both, right? And if you try to run a, and this goes back to your earlier question about to top of the funnel, if you try to run a demand program without brand, you will create a lot of problems. Not, you don't mean to, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be misinterpreted there. I'm not trying to be mean, but you will. You will burn out your machinery, meaning your your marketing automation campaigns and all that kind of stuff. You'll burn them out because you're not connecting with anybody at any kind of emotional level. You're just, you know, going right up the middle again and again and again, trying to close the deal. If you over-rotate on the brand side, right, you just have this big puddle of stuff that isn't attached to anything. It's not making something move better, faster, more effectively, more efficiently. Brand is a multiplier of demand. Uh, and, and by that, I mean the demand function. It's, it, so you got you to gotta balance it out. Does that answer your question? It, it gives more context. So let's, let's take a step back. Knowing fully well, we, we have the demand and brand side. If you were even taking proof analytics out of the picture, if you were building a business and someone came up to you saying, I'd like to be the CMO, are you looking for a practitioner who is an expert in both sides? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, and, and I, you know, I mean, in the earliest days uh, and, and maybe uh, I think some some people would accuse me of still doing this from time to time. It's kind of hard to stop being a CMO. Um but I work really hard not to be the, you know, the head of marketing proof anymore, right? I'm, that's not my job. Um, and to the extent that I, I do that, I'm, I'm causing problems for somebody else who doesn't deserve that. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this whole idea that, you know, I want, I want to, uh, you know, hire a, go-to-market team that's very demand-focused in the early days and only, only later kind of move over to the brand side is not the point at all, right? I mean, even though we spent our money in percentage terms uh, more on demand in the early days, we have steadily recalibrated that because we understand that it's it's not one or the other. It's both and. It's just the skew changes. This is a perfect segue into talking about the T-shaped marketer. Yeah. What does it mean to be T-shaped in your opinion? Perpetual growth, right? I mean, I am more T-shaped today than I was last year or the year before. And I have this strange feeling that uh, going into the economy that we're going into right now, that I, when I, whenever it is that we come out the other side, I'm going to be even more uh, T-shaped as a result of that experience. So the T here is all about the relationship between depth of expertise in one area. So that's the vertical part of the T. So it's, it could be marketing, but it could be anything, right? And the horizontal bar is, let's call it contextual understanding. It's everything that that your deep experience and expertise that that vertical leg touches or impacts. And if you don't understand that context piece, you'll be profoundly limited as you move up the, the ladder, 
not just in marketing, but you know, enterprise IT, HR, whatever you pick, pick it, right? Um, I mean, I came out of um, uh, IT automation software. Uh, that was that's also part of my career. So I saw all of this happen to CIOs. What is currently happening with CMOs has happened many times before, and probably the last big one was the CIO. Some people would say the, the CHRO, right? But but it, it's in it's one of those two is the most recent one. And if you look at a very successful CIO or CHRO today, they are profoundly T-shaped. They And let me be very clear what this means. They are business people first who happen to specialize in enterprise IT or HR or marketing, right? So their whole perspective is a business first perspective, not a function first perspective. And that is really, really key. I, I just can't even tell you how important that is. If you have any aspirations to move beyond a specialist role in a marketing team and, and move up, right, and have a, a more horizontal view across marketing and then ultimately across the business, you're going to have to you're going to have to master that. And so I'll give you just a couple of examples, right? If you haven't ever carried a bag, if you don't really know what it's like to sell, my personal view is that you will not uh, be a candidate for CMO within the next five years. If you can't read a financial statement and, you know, not like, you know, I'm not saying you have to be a CFO, you know, closet CFO. I'm just saying you have to be able to read a financial statement and talk about it. It tells a story in, in, in a, and that is the distillation of the language of business right there. So if you can't read it and talk about it, you do not speak the language of business. And that's going to be a major limiting factor. I just did a, I, I helped co-lead uh, an offsite recently. I wrote about it on LinkedIn for one of the, it was the marketing practice of one of the large recruiting firms. We were talking about the, the modern CMO, right? Being very T-shaped. And one of the things that, so I made this point about reading financial statements and their response was sort of mind blowing, right? They said, you know, barely 10% of CMO candidates that we talk to can do that. That's a, that's a big problem, right? If you don't know how your business makes its money, right? Like product line by product line. So like, for example, at BMC Software, we had mainframe. And mainframe was generating huge margins for the business, but no growth. And then we had kind of the more distributed side, you know, uh, and that was almost a money loser at the time, but it was where the growth was coming from. You invest as a marketer very differently in those two situations. But if you don't know this, then you will just kind of do this one size fits all kind of approach to marketing and it won't work. Very well. Do you think at least for one half of it? Do you think this is a contributing factor to why most CMOs only last two years at most in an organization? 
I think that it is certainly a really big part of it is by no means. Actually, I'll tell you what the core issue is there. There's no there's no doubt in my mind after seeing analytics and uh, upon analytics. So average tenure is somewhere between two and three years. Uh, time lag is their major enemy. They will come into the role. They will spend three months on a listening tour. They will invariably default to a some sort of new website project or new branding project, or it'll be something like that. It might even be new demand. Mark, right? before you continue, what is a listing tour? Sorry? What is a listing tour? Is that what you said? Listing tour? No, I didn't say that. Okay. Well, so you went through the list. You were talking about how um, they will, the first three months, they're going around. Oh, a listening tour. Or a listening tour. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah. Okay. Listen, sorry. No sorry. worries. No worries. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, the a listening tour is, you know, where you go around and you meet with everybody in the leadership all over the world and you hear what they all have to say and you hear the complaints about marketing and where you think, where they think you ought to take it next. And it's all a big exercise in politics, which is not bad. Okay. It's necessary. You want people to not only feel heard, but be heard. Because guess what? They will teach you some cool stuff. They will give you some great perspective. But it takes too long. And the way it's currently done by most CMOs. So they're squandering time. They don't think about it in this way, right? But that's really what's happening. And because by the time they are really investing in their own programs, as opposed to reaping the benefits or, or not, as the case may be, of what their predecessor invested in, they're six to nine months into the job. You know, there's a lot of time lag in those new investments that they're making. Uh, a lot of it will look like it's not making a difference. The C and the, the C suite will go, but, you know, somewhere around 18 months or so the C-suite will start to whisper to the, each other, this is not working. This is not working. Can you tell it's working? Can I tell it's working? No, I don't see anything, right? This is the beginning of the end for the CMO in question. And this is why the analytics at the end of the day are so pivotal because you need to be able to educate the C-suite on the realities of marketing. So just like you need to understand the business, you need to help them understand the realities of marketing. And if they think that your campaign is supposed to turn into you know, an amazing business impact the next quarter, I got you know, a newsflash for you that probably, you know, I got I got some oceanfront property in Arizona to sell you if you if you really believe that, right? No one does, but no one, it's not enough to say, well, I understand it takes a long time. That's not enough. What it takes is being able to forecast how long it's going to take for these different investments to actually make money for the for the business. That's key. And then to recalc the models, recalculate the models. Um, fast enough, meaning frequently enough, where 
you're catching the deltas between the forecast and the actuals. And because you have in, you know, included all this uh, stuff that's going on in the marketplace in your model, it will start to say, okay, it's these factors that are changing. So we saw a lot of this during COVID, right? These factors are changing and it's slowing down the impact of these investments or it's blowing them off course. So you're no longer on course to, to hit your goal, right? So we need to make some adjustments uh, in order to get back on track. This is where the, the whole analogy, the best analogy ever on this is the GPS on your phone. So the issue with analytics for marketing is not just the standard calculations, right? This is your ROI multiplier and all that, that kind of stuff. It's the ability to navigate your way through changing market conditions, which right now, and for the last, say, three years, have been breathtaking in their velocity and in their volatility. If you think past is prologue, if you think that because, you know, whatever it is worked for you four years ago, that it's going to work now, you don't know that anymore. You might be right still, but you don't know that for sure, not without the analytics. Speaking of analytics, who should own attribution in a marketing team? Is it the CMO? Is it channel owner by channel owner? Is it marketing ops, demand gen? What do you think about that? You know, that's a really great question. And I think it's sort of being uh, negotiated right now inside of a lot of different companies. We have clients. I mean, in this sense, we are probably uh, an exemplar of, of the different answers to your questions. We have we have clients that uh, have centralized it in finance. Uh, so they're the, the companies that do that are essentially saying we want a disconnected, disinterested third party to do all the measurement, do all the analytics, right, and just roll it out and say this is what it is, and uh, you know, kind of strip the politics out of it as much as possible. RevOps is coming on strong, and I think that if your RevOps team is more than just a renamed marketing ops team or sales ops team, then that's probably, that could be a really good place for it. You're going to, you know, even within RevOps, so RevOps, marketing ops, sales ops are still dominated by people who are very, very talented and very valuable functionaries, right? They run the, the, the tech stack. They run different pieces of the tech stack. They're very accomplished in this area. They are not analysts, right? And so you're going to need to bring some analysts, not a lot. I mean, one of the beautiful things about proof or things like proof, right, that are heavily automated like that is that you get a lot of leverage off of one or two guys uh, in data science, that, and you don't have to hire a 20-person team anymore. So that is, that's kind of wh where I see it going right now. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons why, I mean, the, the, the natural statement here or question is to say, well, why not centralize it in data science, right, and data analytics team? 
The problem with doing that is that you have a bunch of PhDs that are brilliant at data science. They know the math backwards, forwards, and sideways, and they usually know absolutely nothing about the business, nor do they know anything about marketing, right? They just don't. So you have to really do the, the kind of like the, the conceptual thinking for them. Um, and of course, that's an option. And I would really encourage any marketing team to have those kinds of conversations on a regular basis with analytics. But the problem is, is that most marketers kind of almost like by definition, don't enjoy hanging out with data science people, you know? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Vogue magazine meets, you know, pocket protector dude, right? I mean, these are just culturally incredibly disparate. And it's hard for, I mean, basically, I talk to a lot of data scientists. I certainly do. They think of most marketers as vapid, which is really hardcore characterization. But that's how they feel about it. Most marketers look at the data scientists and say, "Not wouldn't wouldn't date that guy or that girl for nothing, right?" And so, what's happening here is that both sides are making very superficial judgments about the other, and thus not communicating. It gets worse because most marketers see data scientists as a judge in black robes that's going to say whether they did a good job or not. And they should be seeing data scientists as both a coach and a bodyguard, right? So the coach is fairly self-evident, right? You, the more you know, the better the decision you make is. The bodyguard is, hey, I made this decision. I need proof, small p proof, that it was the right decision, right? That it produced really great results for the business because I may have taken a big risk and I, I don't want people to think that it was a bad decision. I want them to see it for what it was. It was a badass decision. Right. And so that's the bodyguard side of analytics. I'm conscious of our time. So I want to make sure we get my time is yours, man. My time. is. Yours. So I want to make sure we get to a very important part of what I had in store for this interview. What does it mean to be recession-proof as a marketer? And this is not just for CMOs, aspiring CMOs, mid-level managers, or entry-level marketers, which is the audience. Any marketer, what does it mean to be recession-proof? There's a lot of parts to that. but I, So we've talked about quite a few of them already. So I would sort of uh, ask everybody to kind of do a rewind. But some of the others right, is to, is to realize that if you have a very high base, when a, when a recession hits, C-suites start looking for large pools of money because if they can cancel those out or cut them back dramatically, they meet their goal, their cost-cutting goal a lot faster. So one of the reasons why people who make a lot of money, particularly on a base, get fired first is exactly that. It's the same reason why, or it's part of the same reason, why 
marketing gets tagged first with big cuts, right? In percentage terms and sometimes in real terms, marketing represents a huge expense. So there's a big pot, pool of money right there, and, and we can we can really you know make a lot of progress just by whacking marketing. The other part though, right, which is really important to say, is that even today, and I'm sorry, both sides own this, but marketers have a disproportionate, you know, they it, it's not 50-50, it's like 70-30 they own the fact that the C-suite still is not only unconvinced a lot of times by what they're doing, but the C-suite doesn't even know whether they should be spending more money on marketing or less money on marketing, right? From a purely business perspective, right? If, if there's a lot of headwinds in the marketplace and they still need to show 20% growth, guess what? They're going to have to spend more marketing dollars, right? Probably, almost assuredly. But how much more? And in what areas? And where is the point of diminishing returns, right? After which time it's really stupid to continue to spend money on this part of marketing or that part of marketing or whatever, because you're not going to get any more bang for the buck. There's sat it's called saturation, right? So I would say that when they cut. They cut because they have no idea what they've been getting. And so they also have no idea what they will be losing in the future. Remember the time lag, right? So this is, this is accentuated. This problem is accentuated big time by the fact that time lag works both ways, right? So all the, all the money, that all the investments that were made in marketing six months ago, they are they are going to be working for you going forward for some period of time before they dissipate because you haven't continued to invest. So what happens so many times is the CEO and the CFO whack the hell out of marketing, right? And then for the next nine months, they can't tell that there's any difference. And they're like, see, see, told you, told you, right? We were spending too much money. And then all of a sudden, man, the wheels come off the wagon and everything goes to hell, and everybody goes, whoa. And then right about that time is when all of a sudden everybody says, ooh, we cut too far, we got it wrong, need to reinflate marketing. But the problem is you've lost a lot of your talent, you've lost a lot of your continuity, you've lost a lot of your brand power, right? So the zigzag, if you, if you plot this over like a 20-year period with big companies, it's like this. It's a roller coaster ride. That's what marketing looks like. And it's two curves that are equally roller coastery, if you'll allow me to, to create that word, right? One of them is spend, spend acceleration and deceleration. And then on a time lag basis, you have a mirror curve, right, on what is happening with the business. But they're inverted. So that's, that's, so if coming back to the recession proof thing, Right. And this is also I, I mean, I realize I'm an analytics CEO, but let me just tell you, I think it's still the truth, whether you buy my product or somebody else's. If you want to be recession proof, be able to tie what you do directly and provably to things that the business cares about and revenue margin and cash flow top that list every time. 
be able to say, you know what, I, uh, I believe in my ability and my contribution so much that I'm not going to go for that super large base. I want higher variable comp tied to these analytics, tied to my not only achieving certain kinds of KPIs in the short cycle, but also the value that I end up creating for the business in the longer cycle. And that is, as long as you stay synced with the fortunes of the business, where if you're making a lot of money for them, they're going to pay you gladly because guess what? You know, you're an engine of growth or an engine of profitability. But if all you are is a large base salary with a little bit of variable comp, you're, you're, I'll tell you what, the way you're seen, and, and it's, you know, it's not fair or not humane to say it this way, right? But it's the truth, uh, is they see you as a sunk cost. And if, you, if all of a sudden they can't afford you anymore, which is what's happening, by the way, right now. All these individuals that negotiated these really big raises, whether within the company they were in or they went to another company that paid them, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent more. They are the ones right now. I mean, I've, I talked to them. They're the ones getting whacked in these layoffs. When you mentioned this, the metric that comes to my mind, which I recently discovered, and this is one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast. Revenue per employee. And the reason why that comes up to my mind, it it ties back to the earlier part of this conversation. Marketers have to know how the business works. And part of that is labor costs are something you need to look at on a financial statement. And to a certain degree, the reason why marketing is cut before sales, product, operations it's hard to determine revenue per employee. And you have to, whether you're the marketing leader, someone in the middle, you have to be that voice if there isn't that says, we need to be able to attribute our marketing activities to revenue growth. Now, I feel like there's a lot of value here. So I wanna end on my favorite part, which is my favorite question. If you had access to a time machine, and can go back in time 10 years into the past, knowing everything you know right now, how would you accelerate the speed of your career? I would have built uh, proof a lot sooner, right? I mean, again, that the, the magic, uh, operationally speaking, is not in the math or the data. It's in the speed with which you can use analytics to refine data. So this is the data is oil analogy, right? But you can't just burn oil in your car, in your gas tank and have it work, right? You have to you have to refine it into gasoline. Same thing is true for data and that's what analytics is. Analytics is a giant refinery, mathematical refinery. And so, but you gotta be able to speed it up. There's something in so Top Gun, right? We've all we're all seeing Top Gun. It's a great movie. There's a concept that came out of the fighter pilot community that's actually totally mainstream in data science today, and it's called the OODA loop. O O D A. Look it up. Right. The essence of the OODA loop is 
This is how long it takes me to observe something, to get oriented, to decide, and then to act. In a fighter plane, right, if you are slow on the OODA loop, you're a dead duck sooner or later, right? You have to be faster. What, what makes you win is when your OODA loop is faster than your opponent's OODA loop. That's the essence of it. The way that this works in data science and in business is that if your data and analytics OODA loop is slower than the actual clock speed of the business, you're never going to get anywhere with it, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're talking to a very large enterprise uh, technology company right now that you would all immediately know who this is, who has been a marketing mix modeling user, so that's the math, for, I don't know, 10 years, right? And they and they and the the vendor that they work with is a consultancy, and they're, so they're doing it kind of the uh, more legacy, non-automated way. And they do a great job. I mean, the math is fantastic. The models are fantastic. But by the time that they deliver the models to this company, everything, including the forecasts, are in the past. So this is an example of where. Everything is too slow. You can't use it to control your future or even influence your future at all. So that was why we had to hire and overhire in the data science arena in, at Honeywell was by brute force, by just hiring a ton of these guys, right? We got the speed up, but it was extremely expensive. I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars a year. If I had had proof 12 years ago, man, it would have just been unreal. You know, I mean, it would have just, you know, I, but things work out the way they're supposed to work out. I, I'm a big believer in that. You know, if I had had something like proof 12 years ago, I probably never would have become an entrepreneur. I would have stayed a CMO. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. At all. But you know, the, my life had a different track. It was it was moving in a different direction. And it's not to say that I won't ever be a CMO again, but this is where I am today. And and I'm my whole goal is to, it's one of the reasons, for example, why I don't get very commercial very often on LinkedIn. I think it interferes with my ability to help people. And marketers have the best, freaking job in any company okay except for this issue and this issue makes the profession suck over time right how many times all you guys listening to me right now how many times have you sat in a conference room and been told man i just don't see it i don't see the proof i don't see you know i don't i mean really you know we just got through spending 10 million dollars on brand what does that get us we just got through spending, you know, 30 million on marketing automation campaigns, you know, demand campaigns. Did, you know, and we don't even know whether they're good leads or not. Half the time sales doesn't even use the leads, right? All and you hear all this stuff, right? That is that motivating? I don't think so. It didn't motivate me, right? 
I mean, the main reason why I made a decision to be analytics led was that I was sick and effing tired, right, of that kind of conversation. It was, I felt like no one took me seriously enough to actually believe that what we were doing was valuable. And in fairness, they shouldn't have to just believe they should, they should have it proven to them. You know, what, one of the things that was important to me personally was to be taken seriously. And I felt like that in a lot of these large companies, even as CMO and CCO, right, I was, most of my influence was political. I had to develop all these relationships to grease the skids and get done what I wanted to get done, as opposed to being able to make a case. And so that's why I did it, right? Um, and it, it was quite the adventure, clearly. And, uh, and I'm, so I'm glad that I automated it. I really wish I had had proof 12 years ago, though. Main takeaways for me, and I definitely will be listening to this over and over again, but the main two for me is learn more about the business that I'm marketing and be able to tell a story with data that proves marketing is having an effect on revenue. Mark? If anyone wanted to say hello to you online, where can they find you? Well, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so um, you, it's not hard to find me there. You can also reach me on Twitter at, you know, my address is Mark Stoose um, on, on Twitter. Those are really the two best ways to reach me personally. Corporately, our company's URL is proofanalytics.ai, um, and there's a lot of information there. And if I can... If we can help you, if I can help you in any way, I'm happy to do so. You know, that's it's really my, I mean, I certainly like making money. I want the company to be successful, but I am here to help you, period. And, and we definitely got that from all of the information you gave us in the first one hour podcast of the People Digital Marketing. And with that said, I want to say thank you, Mark. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode. And as always, I hope you have a great week. Also, if you haven't done so already, rate us on Apple and rate us on Spotify. It will help us out a lot. Thank you. On episode 94 of this show, The People of Digital Marketing, we will have David Finberg on the podcast. And he is an agency owner as well as a SEO expert. He considers himself a digital Sherpa for his clients and next episode's topic is mainly about his story getting into marketing. He was a website developer at the age of nine, believe it or not. And we'll be talking about where should SEO sit in within a marketing team, the core functions of an SEO team, and much, much more. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. And also, if you just finished listening to this episode, again, please rate us on any podcasting app that you're listening to this on. And as always, I hope to connect with you online. Peace. Hey, thanks again for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to submit a rating and leave a review on your podcasting app. Reviews like this help to grow this podcast and get it to more people like yourself people who want to grow in their marketing careers. If you want to say hello, you can find me on any social media platform by simply searching Kenny Soto. I look forward to hearing from you soon. And as always, let's keep growing together.